Disrupting Japan, Episode 20. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. We are broadcasting today from the new Disrupting Japan studios at the foot of Tokyo Tower. In fact, if you look closely at our logo, you can almost see the building. Of course, the most interesting part of the show was recorded at the offices of Gengo over a beer with co founder and new CEO, Matt Romain. Gengo is one of the world's largest crowdsourced translation platforms, and we talk a bit about his crazy journey building it and the changes that lay ahead for the translation markets. You know, since Disrupting Japan is focused on innovation and disruption, there's never a shortage of new topics. Change is the one thing that is constant in this industry, and in this world, I suppose. I, I guess you could say that change is the one thing that never changes. But change is simple. The world changes whether we want it to or not. Change is easy, but progress is hard. And what I found most interesting in this discussion is all the different ways in which Matt is focusing on progress in this time of corporate change. We talk about the recent change of CEO at Gengo and how he's using this change to improve relationships among his staff, his customers, and his investors. And Matt explains not only the changes he had to make in his company to make this work, but also the changes he had to make in himself. But Matt tells the story much better than I do. So let's get right to the interview. So we're sitting here with Matt Romain of Gengo, formerly My Gengo. It's the largest and certainly most interesting crowdsourced translation platform in Japan, perhaps the world now.、And、that's a really simple way to introduce it.、Mm. I think you can probably do, do your company a lot more justice than I just did.、Mm. Well, to start, the word Gengo means language in Japanese. There used to be a boom、uh, in Japan to add the word my before something. So, like, my hashi would be like my personal chopsticks. Oh, that's where my Gengo yeah, came from. I or, see. Or my, my boomu so is.、Uh, Your, your current boom, your current sort of、um, interest or hobby.、Yeah. Uh, and so at the time we thought we would throw on、uh, Mai before the Gengo. But we had an opportunity to buy the domain Gengo.com. So we rebranded and dropped the Mai, kind of like the Facebook dropping the. The, okay. Yeah.、Um, so as a company, yeah, we're a crowdsourced translation platform.、Uh, so we have about 15,000 translators now around the world.、Uh, we do 37 languages, all of them through English and then a couple other within the matrix、um, through across Japanese. So when you say through English, you do a lot of language pairs. So、mm-hmm. if someone's translating Russian into Chinese, it would go through English first? Exactly. So, for, for that specific pair, Russian and Chinese, it would have to go through English. There are other language pairs, such as Japanese to Thai or Japanese to Indonesian, which are direct language pairs. Okay.、Um, so, we have over 60 language pairs,、um, but in terms of unique languages, we have around 37. So, what, what language pairs are most popular? I'm guessing Japanese to English, but. Japanese to English, definitely. English German is a popular one as well. English Portuguese is also、um, quite popular. It kind of. Fluctuates depending on sort of customer needs at the time. Oh, really? So it's quite fluid that way.、Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that makes sense. Gengo is filling a, a very specific niche、mm-hmm. in the, the translation business. As I understand it, you guys aren't doing literary translations. You're, not, you're, you're a cut above the machine translation of something like Google. So, what is kind of a typical Who uses Gengo on the customer side? So, one of the drivers for us launching actually was so I used to work at Sony. 
And even though I was hired as an engineer, I would have more and more colleagues asking me to translate you know, their email correspondence with another <laughs> yes, colleague. That's a curse that falls on any bilingual employee in Japan. Yeah, yeah. You uh, become the default translator. Exactly. Sort of in-house translator. You weren't hired for it, but then you end up doing a lot of that kind of work. And so I found myself doing, doing quite a bit of that. And so when we launched, it was, it was sort of to address the desire to want to read blogs and news. You don't need a professional translator with years of experience so the goal is news. to give someone like um, the reliable basic understanding of what's being said basically yeah I mean I mean the content itself is not that complex um, because of, of platforms like Facebook and Twitter and e-commerce those are the types of platforms that are generating the type of content that um, we feel Gengo translators are best suited for and so the idea is like from a central location you can actually tweet in multiple languages and to get those tweets out in multiple languages, um, those platforms would use Gengo. Right, a huge so you'd have a human being. I got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. But you know that brings up something really interesting because this is what struck me as how Gengo seems different from all of the other online translation agencies out there, and there mm-hmm. are a lot of them. It seems to me that your a lot of your growth is coming from your your open API, your your willingness to embrace connectivity to other people yeah so so in the very beginning when we launched gengo was just kind of like one of one of a couple web projects that we were building right we didn't really set out to raise multiple rounds of funding and build the the company that it is now but after we launched we noticed what were you you trying to do at first what was your vision like when you were first creating it our initial version was text area copy and paste we immediately calculate how many words or characters there are. It will give you a quote because it's a fixed price per character or per word. And you can decide on the spot if you want to pay. And if you do, then you use PayPal or PayPal credit card or something like that, right? So basically just rapidly accelerating the existing model. And cutting out a whole bunch of steps. Yeah. yeah. The other funny thing is a lot of these agencies, they won't do less than a page or they won't do less than 100 bucks. For sure. example, too, right? too expensive to send out the invoice otherwise. Mm. And so there were cases where, what is this tweet saying? Or what is this you know, email <laughs> saying? And it's only you know, 50 words. So then you can't even get it done, period. And our model was you can translate one word if you want. Um, and people actually do, you know, interestingly. Yeah, really? Because sometimes machine translation, it's difficult to give a machine the context. Mm-hmm. Right. But for human translation, you can say, here's the word I want translated. But here is the background information. Or here's the context for it. Oh, so then right, the translator right. reads the context at no cost because they need to understand how, the, how to best translate the word. And then they translate the one word and get paid for that. Right, right, right. Machine translation as a technology has been around for over 50 years. Really? The concept of it. Yeah, yeah. The development of it within the industry for the past, at least the past decade, there's this kind of running joke that, that every year someone says, in five years. <laughs> So when did you start opening up the API and, and letting other people plug into your system? When we realized that the platform could be, the service could be more than, than just this web form where you order translation and based on some of the content that we were seeing being or, uh, ordered for translation. So like product descriptions, people were actually selling stuff on like eBay and Yahoo auctions and stuff. All right. We were like, well, that's kind of interesting. It's a really short form. So it's a couple hundred words, you know, product description. thought, well, how can we make it even easier for them to to order it basically it was like well if we can get to be integrated into those platforms then that would be fantastic right so that led to okay how do we do that well we have to develop an api 
The API was never closed. From the get-go, we were just thinking, well, of course, you would you would make it open because you want people to build on top of it, which then means there should be client libraries, there should be online documentation, right. there should be a sandbox for people to kick the tires against. So that was always built from the very beginning. You guys have been in really kind of a, a marathon fundraising mode since the very beginning. I mean, you've been growing like crazy, but mm. you've done $25 million dollars in six rounds in about six years. Is that about right? Um, five, five or six. I mean, if you count friends and family of like, you know, less than a hundred grand, then... Um, That's kind of a crazy about, pace. About it's... 23 mil, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, the market itself is just humongous, you know, uh, humongous, <laughs> humongous. <laughs> oh, we got the Sam Adams already starting to kick Yeah, there it. we go. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, no, it's a huge, it's a huge market opportunity. I guess what's kind of funny is, you know, initially when we were trying to raise from angels in Japan, they were kind of hesitant. 2008, 2009? Nine, yeah. Nine. 2009, 2010. Tried to raise from local angels here. I found it quite challenging. Ended up going to the U.S. because of uh, Dave McClure. So right. um, I had met Dave at a dinner about a year after I left Sony. And, uh, we kept in touch. A couple years later, I have this uh, Gengo idea going, and so pitched it to him. And he got really excited because he immediately saw the need for international and global support. This is right before he was setting up or during during setting up 500 Startups, actually. Um, gave us a bit of funding and said, come out to the U.S. I'll introduce you to a bunch of angel investors and VCs and see if you can raise a seed round. And that was sort of what kicked off the, the fundraising. Every investor that we have has either lived overseas or... Yeah, it basically has lived overseas. Yeah, anyone that's lived overseas will immediately see the value of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's not surprising. Yeah. And it's mostly been in hiring, you've been growing the team um, mostly focused on the engineering talent? On The emphasis now for this most recent round that was announced last week uh, is on sales and marketing. We talked before about recruiting in Japan and trying to hire engineers, and I know this is something that, well, both of us feel very passionately about. Mm. What do, you, what do you think is the, the biggest challenge and the biggest advantage that a foreign company has in hiring engineering talent here in Japan? One challenge is just going to be to, to get the talent that you feel is going, is, is fits with your culture. Every company, whether they're a foreign quote-unquote company or not, um, you know, has a different sense of culture. And so finding, because the pool is, in a way, it's smaller here, yeah. right? Um, especially but, if you need to run, if you need to operate in English. Well, one thing I've noticed over the last... 15 years or so in Japan. Mm -hmm. So software engineering was never really seen as a particularly respected profession. Sales was, mm -hmm. hardware engineering kind of what it mm -hmm. is, but software engineers were expected by the time they were 30 to move into management. Mm -hmm. If you were a software engineer at 35, uh, it'd be like being unmarried at 35. Everyone looks at you and says, something must be wrong with this guy. <laughs> that seems to be changing now with uh, the current crop of startups and mm. such, but ha have you found it most effective to recruit engineers from the pool of larger companies, people who are looking to try something new and exciting and have their work mean something? Or have you been focusing on uh, younger, more energetic people who grew up in this startup culture? So our approach uh, in building our team, by default, you know, the company basically runs in English. And so what we've been able to do is hire individuals who are from overseas and are interested in living and working in Japan, we provide an environment where they can be productive because they work in English and they can live in Japan and they bring, uh, they're interested in, in a you know, growing, vibrant uh, work environment. So that's, that's the type of individual that 
you know, is attracted to Gengo and that we're attracted to interested in hiring. So what's the breakdown in your engineering department? Like what percent Japanese, what percent? I think it's about 50-59. It might even be 60-40 um, Japanese and foreign, actually. Right. So a few more Japanese. That's a good mix. Yeah. Um, and then so then on the Japanese side, what's interesting is we are most interested in individuals who, who are interested in a f- sort of more foreign work environment. Do you think Japanese view foreign companies as more, or foreign technology companies as more progressive or more innovative? That's definitely another component of it, yeah. yeah. So um, one of my pitches when um, I was helping to grow the engineering team was definitely, here are the tools that we're using, and we use GitHub, we're moving from PHP to Python, uh, and now we're moving a lot of um, code from Python to Golang. Right, um, right. We're trans- we transition from MySQL to Postgres, like we do things like hackathons, our overseas listeners are hearing this right now and thinking, well, yeah, of course that's they typical. do. Right, right. And our Japanese listeners are going, that's fantastic. I'm going to be sending my resume. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I mean, yeah. It give, is very progressive here to yeah. do that. We give a lot of flexibility. Like there's not, basically there's not this process someone has to go through just to get approval to use a new tool or a new service or something. You know? Right, it's right. Like, you want to try out a new tool, some new SaaS service that's going to improve your workflow or something on the engineering team. Maybe it costs 50 bucks a month or something. Here's the credit card. Use it for a couple months. See if you like it or not. But also make a decision pretty quick. Like either you find it effective or not. And then if you don't, close the account and move on. Yeah, and here's the astounding thing is that in the end is far cheaper to operate that way mm. than to have everything run through approval. Mm-hmm. And so many Japanese firms don't realize that. They, they're, a lot of security concerns, I suppose, is one I, part of it. I, I mean, suppose, but it, I think it's more of a, a general vague fear of loss of control. Mm. Yeah, possibly. You're right. That type of environment is not typical in the larger Japanese companies. And so it's, it becomes very attractive for engineers for the for the Japanese engineers, yeah. Okay, I can see it being a very unique and attractive work environment for for Japanese engineers who sort of admire the foreign mm. startup way of doing things. Mm. Mm. Actually, getting back to the fundraising, mm-hmm. your fundraising marathons. <laughs> now you've just closed um, five, a little under five and a half million. Mm-hmm. This round is all Japanese investors. New investors are all Japanese, yeah. Is I mean, that... The existing investors also followed on, so that's always a good sign. Yeah. yeah. Does that represent a different, uh, a new shift in strategy? Did it just kind of work out that way? Um, it's more the latter. It's, there was a certain element of practicality. So since the core team is here in Japan, our investors, our prior investors, Series A and Series B, our contacts are basically also in Japan. So they've been very supportive in helping us with the introductions. There was sort of an element of practicality where I'm already in Japan. I can speak Japanese, and, and so I can pitch to them in Japanese. And I think there's also um, growing interest from just the Japanese investor side as well to invest in more startups. There was no big underlying reason for it. It just sort of worked out that way. It's what it sounds like. Yeah. A lot I mean, of strategic partnerships, a lot of... You know. I would, yeah, for the most part, I would say so. Let me ask you about... about kind of your own path through all this because you you went from programmer to sort of a day-to-day operational CTO to a more of a co-founder role and you've recently taken over as CEO mm-hmm. and actually before we go back into the distant past let, let's talk about the recent past any transition of that that magnitude particularly in Japan mm. you know it's it's very unusual for a company to change CEOs and 
how are you managing internally? How are you how are you keeping the team focused on the the core mission through this transition? Um, in our case, our mission hasn't really changed. the The transition. So I've always been kind of more going to conferences and sure, and, um, very public. I mean. Mm-hmm. Very much the public face, kind of more outward facing, and so uh, yeah, and we were on a couple panels together, That's right, and and, uh, and conferences together, and so that plus uh, just the fact that you know I did the fundraising with the Japanese investors in this round, um, we've built a uh, a very stable and scalable infrastructure. Capacity wise, we can handle you know maybe more than ten times the current volume of content that we're doing. Right, right. Uh, and so you know Japan is is a large market for us. It's not. It's in fact. Um, not our largest uh, market currently, uh, and so there's a lot of uh, low-hanging fruit potentially. Well, that makes sense from like a, a high-level strategic point of view. But all business in Japan is very personal. Mm. Something as important and significant as changing a CEO. I mean, there's a lot of companies that don't survive that. Mm. How are you getting the team through it? What are you telling the the employees? What's the what's the story? So naturally, with with any kind of transition like this, there's going to be some level of attrition. Yeah, employees kind of end up falling into one of three groups in a transition like this, when there's sort of a, an individual leader. Um, one group is individuals or employees who haven't been around long enough to really develop um, a specific or a deep emotional connection to be impacted by a change like that. So they're you know willing to focus and and see where things go. Right. There's another group that maybe kind of lost confidence in the existing you know, leadership at the time, and so they were waiting for some kind of change. Okay. And then in the third group, it's their individuals who are very loyal to, to the previous leadership um, and so are personally sort of disrupted by it. Mm. Um, at least that's, that's kind of what I observed because I did, I went through and had one-on-ones with every single employee. Okay. How many employees do you have? We've now? got about a little over forty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it took some time. Yeah, but right? time well spent. Yeah, I think so. And uh, gave them an opportunity to share their thoughts, uh, listen to them, and and hear their concerns and and where they want what they want to get out of you know working at Gango. Um, you know, out of those three groups, then obviously there's the group that's hoping to move on to some new opportunity or something like that, right? Right. Right. For the other two groups, my focus uh, has been to re-engage with them uh, and get them engaged in Gengo's mission. One of the things that I've noticed over the past year leading up to this transition was that we haven't really been exposing sort of the Gengo internals to the outside world in terms of the relationships with the customers and the public as much. What do you mean? The, that feedback loop bringing back impressions that customers have uh, and that the public has on Gengo. As a Gengo employee, you might have sort of uh, observed it peripherally, kind of like maybe you read it in a a blog post or you you read it in the news somewhere, but but there weren't, it wasn't, it was kind of a tenuous type of observation. So so most employees didn't really have a sense of what your customers thought of Gengo and thought of the product? Yeah, not just customers, but just like the public, like high-profile individuals as well. Oh, okay. Uh, and what their impressions were and how they felt about Gengo. What are, you, what are you changing to give your employees that insight on what the world thinks of Gengo? Sure. I've started this new thing called basically the guest speaker series, bringing in individuals who are high-profile from outside uh, and ha- giving them an opportunity to share and present 
some topic of their choosing to the company. Uh, so as an example, we had John Britton from GitHub. All right. Um, we're going to have uh, Craig Maud come this Friday. Uh, and so he's the former UI UX designer for the Flipboard's uh, iPhone app, right? And he's right, also an right. advisor for Smart News. So just kind of doing more of that, like the fact that Gango is able to attract those types of high-profile individuals to come and visit the company and speak I see. I see, is, yeah. is kind of a, a validation metric, I guess, if you no, will. I guess it makes sense because it not only validates the, the company that Gango is a force in the world, mm -hmm. but it also provides some really insightful ideas and, and can start some interesting conversations among the, the staff. So yeah. it's, yeah, that makes that's, sense. I mean, that's the hope, right? Also, up until the transition, the investors and the employees have been very sort of segregated. Um, most of the employees didn't know who any of the investors were. Huh. Uh, and so with this transition, what I've done is given opportunities for the investors to interact with the employees. They give you, investors will give you the money, you know, working capital or whatever. And then they also give you their time and their advice and their resources and their energy, right? So it's just a give, 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 right? right. And the, the thing is, all that giving actually is going to lead to significant, the ideal is that it leads to significant uh, ROI, right? For me, anyway, the idea of, of having the investors spend time with the employees is it shows how excited and confident I am in our employees, right? Right, right. Um, and I want the investors to see how awesome the employees are so that they're even more excited when they go out there there and meet other people that, that Gengo is always top of mind. I mean, that part of the job of that the investors sense, is yeah. to be going out there and meeting all these other companies and all these other potential customers. And the more they're th exposed to and thinking about Gengo, the more, and the more excited they get about it, which I think they will, the more they, they yes, interact sir. with I my, can see the increasing the engagement on all sides. Um, is, it, is it working out that way? Are you seeing... Uh... Well, it's still early. It's only been a month. Oh, but... okay. Well, I'll check back in six months. <laughs> What's that? Let me ask you about you, because mm. I know you've got to, as as CEO, you've got to be kind of careful about what you say about the company, mm. but you're free to talk about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> On that that path from from programmer to CTO to co-founder to CEO, I mean that is a lot of changes in skill sets. Mm. But what what did you have to change most about yourself in that journey? I guess thinking a lot more about my relationships with people and just in general. I used to have sort of blinders on and I would just kind of like work on things that I maybe wanted to do and not really thinking about my relationships so much. So what kind of things? Just like getting back to people on email or? or? As simple as that. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. As simple as being uh, responsive and respectful. Yeah. Corresponding in a timely fashion. Thinking about communication in sort of more of a multi-channel uh, okay. way so not just email but occasionally calling or messaging like and wanting to meet in person for example right right, like, right. different people absorb information and appreciate interaction and in different through different mediums and you have to learn to kind of adapt yourself to the various ways that people want exactly. to be interacted exactly with. Yeah. so being perceptive to what is the best way that an individual absorbs information and then trying to accommodate you know their medium yeah, that's it's, it's utterly foreign from a from someone who's strictly focused on the code, right? Mm. Staring at the screen the whole time. Yep. Do you ever miss being heads down in code? Uh, I I do a little bit. Um, I I used to a lot in the very I beginning. I do sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to a lot in the very beginning. It's been a while. 
Uh, because because I sometimes might give some feedback, I will usually get email updates. And then sometimes if I click on the link, it'll take me to like a GitHub, you know, commit. And then I get to look at the code there and then I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know what that's doing. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> to that extent. Look, but don't touch. I can't, I can't deploy anymore. I used it's, to be the one rule. who could. But, for, yeah. I think it's probably for the best for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> we talked a lot about uh, how useful it is that foreign engineering talent is, is coming through Japan and is attracted to a chance to work in a, a bicultural, bilingual environment. Mm. There are a lot of foreign entrepreneurs here in Tokyo now. And some are coming just for a couple of months to, to work somewhere and pass through. But a growing number seem to want to set down roots for a while, to, to grow something here. What advice would you have for foreigners who want to start a company here in Japan? As you and I know, living in Tokyo is ex- super convenient, super safe, um, great Fantastic. lifestyle. Right? That's Quality why we're both life. still here. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I initially thought I was only going to be here for a couple of years. And oh, me it's too. Been over a decade. 23 so. years ago. Yeah. I was coming here for a year or two, check things out. <laughs> So I think in terms of quality of life and ability to maybe focus and get an MVP out or something, like it's a, it's a nice place. You know? yeah. Now, does it make sense to actually register a company and use this as a base? I kind of think it only makes sense if you have some kind of competitive advantage that's specific to Japan. Mm. Otherwise, it's just one you know, hurdle over... There's already going to be so many risks... And so many challenges when you're starting up a company, as much as possible, you want to reduce you know, all the right. different unknowns, right? And so trying to operate in a foreign language, in a foreign land is... Dealing with a foreign culture, it's, it, there's just more unknowns, one after another. So make damn sure you've got an edge that requires you to be here in Japan. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are a couple of foreigners here who obviously have a competitive edge because of the time that they spent here and our abil- their ability to function in a Japanese work environment. For them, those issues are not, they're not risks, they're not hurdles, right? Yeah. Uh, it's just a, and of course, you know, the business model itself needs to make sense, you know, culturally within, within Japan itself. But. All right. Japanese startup founders on average are not nearly as experienced as their, their peers in, in the States or in Europe. Hmm. Like you say, most are still on their first startup. Do you think there's anything that the Japanese startup founders are doing better or more effectively than the rest of the world? Looking at it between founders from different geographies is probably is not the way I would look at it. I would look okay. at it more as the founders versus the investors. Huh. All right. So the information flow and education of the founders across different geographies is actually... Um, moving a lot faster than among the investors. Hmm. So the the founders, whether you, it's your fifth startup or if it's your first startup, the delta in information is 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 much smaller. You know, that's really interesting. I've never and, thought of that. And so the founders are a lot more educated. Well, not just in Japan, just like anywhere around the world. A founder knows, okay, if I'm going to raise capital, you know, what do I need to learn? I, you go onto some resource like, a, what is it, Hacker News or something? Sure, or sure, you, sure. Just, you just search, and then you find out, okay, I've got to think about liquidity preferences. I got to think about, you know, different, you know, funding stages. They I, all kind of know I about that. I never thought right? of that, but I think you're dead on. I, I think that the Japanese entrepreneurs are learning much, much faster than the Japanese venture capitalists. Mm. So then there's a delta between the investors. And first-time investors, you know, around the world, and those in the Bay Area, right, right, that delta is much bigger, I think. 
huh, what's happening in a way is if you have a, a two-time entrepreneur in Asia or, or anywhere outside the Bay Area, they might interact with an investor who's, who is maybe not as in tune or, or as experienced, right? Right. The founder would just basically just as easily just go, well, okay, I can get the terms that I want if I go you know, in this other direction, this quote-unquote other direction being head west. Right. Well, why do you why do you think that is? Do you think it's the that that kind of hierarchical nature of Japan, where where the VCs are they don't want to ask for help or admit they need to learn something, whereas the founders are starting from zero and are willing to ask for help? Why do you think that that delta is so different? Part of it might just be legally. So, for example, convertible notes, yeah. right? Something that was pretty popular a couple of years ago in the Bay Area, completely unheard of. You know, when we initially started doing that in Japan. Um, had to be explained in the me- in the news, like what exactly is a convertible note that you know really? Gengo is raising on, kind of thing. Yeah, and, and that wasn't and, that long ago. When was that? Uh, five, six years ago. Okay, yeah, our first our first one when we when we raised. Part of it might just be sort of knowledge base locally around certain terms and practices um, when it comes to financing. Right. Part of it may be there's an inherent aspect of entrepreneurship that is this desire to want to learn and explore. Ah, uh, yeah. Right, right, um, right. You don't want to sure. get too creative with financing, or you might find yourself in jail. And so yeah. you, you got <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to, yeah. You have to. You work with sort of what you know, um, and don't you don't really try and come up with a new way of doing something unless it's presented to you from it from a, an entrepreneur maybe who comes along and says, "Here's here's a term sheet that I got from this other party, and it's got all this new way of these new mechanics around something." And they go, "I've never seen this before." And then, you know, there's a natural cultural sort of risk aversion of, well, I've never seen it before and therefore... It, you don't know, want to try it. I don't want to try it, right? Yeah. Um, which is the complete antithesis of entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, let me ask you, is there anything that you want to talk about? Anything you want to tell our listeners before we wrap up? A couple, I would say maybe about a year ago, I was kind of pessimistic just about Southeast Asia in general, in terms in terms of just like investment opportunities and stuff. But I think okay. I'm getting more and more excited about it and the opportunities. And and but from an entrepreneurship perspective, so there's a lot of interesting opportunities, services to build, companies to build. What what changed? I think part of it is access to infrastructure and and talent. So yeah. so access to infrastructure, for example, ability to just. The, there's the hardware infrastructure aspect of it, right? Um, and then the services infrastructure aspect of it, being able to use something like Zero, for example, right. right? Which is an Australian, you know, accounting finance sort of platform that we, you know, we use, and even those tools that allow one to basically run an operation um, as, you know, pretty leanly from many parts of, of Asia. So, so just the ability to use cloud computing and SaaS services, the cost of starting a company mm. has gone down. Mm. And so the, the creativity is, within Southeast Asia has been bubbling up. Yeah, the bandwidth is you know getting much better, and obviously there's certain areas that have um, skipped the computer completely and gone straight to the mobile. Oh yeah, right? I'm quite op- excited about that. I think the the investors' expertise. I think there's a bit of a risk there, where if there's like a first time or a, or a new entrepreneur who has a great idea, whose only connection to capital may be through someone who's not as tuned in or connected with. The venture capital style of investment, sure, sure. But I think it doesn't take too much work to to figure out what makes sense from an entrepreneur's perspective. Well, like you say, I mean, venture capital now is more global than ever. Dave McClure, your original investor, has been I don't want to say instrumental, but certainly one of the leaders in investing in emerging economies. It's super important to find 
a cheerleader when you're just getting started. Yeah. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch not only Japan, but Southeast Asia for the next couple of years. I believe so. Well, tell you what, man. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for sitting down with me. I no, think it's a pleasure. A, a great one. Yeah. Thanks, thank you. Man. Yeah. Cool. And we're back. Communication and transparency is something almost all companies struggle with, but especially so here in Japan. I certainly hope that Matt's efforts to improve communication and openness among all of Gengo's stakeholders will bear fruit. And I honestly think they will. That level of transparency is unusual, even in Silicon Valley, where investors and board members tend to interact only with a few top managers. But hey, this openness seems to be something that is part of Gengo's DNA, from their initial open translation API to their recent efforts to have their investors, customers, and employees all get to know each other better. And for all of you technical listeners who are thinking of starting a company, and I know there are a lot of you because I get a lot of email from people just like you, I think that Matt hit the target dead center when he said the hardest and most important thing from transitioning to developer to effective startup CEO was learning that you are responsible for figuring out how other people communicate and then adapting to them. Most people who've never done the job, and a lot of bad CEOs as well, think that it's everyone else's job to adapt to the leader's style. And that usually doesn't end well for startups. Now, if you've got an experience with crowdsourced translation that you want to share, or you want to know more about Gengo, Drop by DisruptingJapan.com slash show020 and leave a comment and let us know what you think. When you drop by this site, you'll also see the links that Matt and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.